a brief prayer before we hear the preaching of God's Word. Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and allow our hearts to grasp the things that you have set aside for your holy people. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. The book of Acts gives us a historical account of the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. Some have referred to this book as the Acts of the Apostles because we see them doing a lot of different things. But it can also be understood as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And this is because the Holy Spirit is undeniably behind everything, big and small, both in the life of the church and in the life of the individuals. From the formation and birth of the church to the ordaining of leaders, from the proclamation of the gospel and missions to conversion of souls to eternal life, from breaking bread at one's home to a community of believers who share in the eternal communion of the Lord's Supper. Everything that takes place within the early church and even now in this present age is led by the Holy Spirit. This is the way that uh, Kent Hughes puts it very eloquently This is what he says. He says, In the Gospels, the Son of Man offered his life. In Acts, the Son of God offered his power. In the Gospels, we see the original seeds of Christianity. In Acts, we see the continual growth of the church. The Gospels tell us of Christ crucified and risen. Acts speaks of Christ ascended and exalted. The Gospels model the Christian life as lived by the perfect man. Acts models it as lived out by imperfect men. And I love that. I love that last part. The Gospels model the Christian life as lived by the perfect man, Jesus. And here, as we, are, we find ourselves in the book of Acts, Acts models the Christian life as it is lived out by imperfect men. That's me. That's you. So as we look at today's text, I want to point out two things. We will see that the Spirit of Christ, again, so Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, we're using interchangeably here. A quick cap on the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, equal in power and majesty, three persons, one God. Right? The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God comes in two distinct ways. First, the Spirit comes in greater power. And secondly, the Spirit empowers the mission. The Spirit comes in greater power and the Spirit empowers the mission. The first, the, the first thing I want to make clear and the, and the one thing we need to understand is that Even though in this time, in this text, Acts 2, the Spirit of God is coming, I want to be clear that the Spirit of God has always been present and active. But it's in this time, in Acts 2, that the Spirit comes in greater power and marks a distinct time in the Church of Christ for the mission of Christ. So I want to take us through the Scriptures a little bit to to, to see how There are differences in the Spirit's working and activity and even power from this 
point of Acts 2. So first I want to look at this, the spirit and creation. If you look at Genesis 1-2, this is what it says. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We see that the spirit of God was present even before creation and during creation. Now I want to look at the spirit and life. Again, if we look at Genesis 2-7, it says this, And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. 1 Corinthians 15-45 here, linking these two, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam, referring to Jesus here, became a life-giving spirit, meaning Christ imparts life. This is why we can also refer the Holy Spirit to the Spirit of Christ. So the Spirit was present and active in creation, before creation. The Spirit was active and present in the giving of life to created beings, Adam and Eve. And the Spirit is active in such a way through Christ that it imparts life. Lastly, I want to look here, the Spirit and presence. We see the Spirit as the presence of God throughout Scripture as well. First, Kings 19, which many of us may be familiar with here. I'll read for us verses 12 to 13, but you'll see on your screen just a portion. And here it is. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Some translations will say a still small voice. And then Elijah heard it. And when when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Secondly, Luke 3. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So we see that the Spirit of God has been active and present and working, but in these subtle ways, these distinct but subtle ways. And now in Acts 2, if you look again here in Acts 2, the Spirit comes in an unprecedented way. Acts 2, 2-4 says this, And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled 
with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit that calmly hovered over the void of chaos in Genesis. The Spirit that gently breathed to give life to man and woman. The Spirit that whispers to the prophets and descends like a dove from the heavens now comes during the void of chaos and the genesis of the church to breathe and give life to that which will become the bride of Christ, to give utterance to all so that prophets would no longer be necessary. The Spirit descended not like a dove, nor did He come like a still small voice, nor a gentle assurance but like a mighty rushing wind filling up the whole house of God and resting on each saint as if a fire were resting on their head above. The Spirit came and filled them as it birthed and ushered in a new creation, a new beginning of the church. This was the promise that Jesus told his disciples during his ministry. This is the promise that he affirmed when he was raised again and met with his disciples for 40 days, preparing them that when he leaves, when he ascends, the Spirit of God that has been promised will come like never before in greater measure. So we see here, see here in this point of history in the church, in the genesis, in the beginning of the church, this is a distinct and indelible moment of grace where God the Father and God the Son sends this promised Holy Spirit. So that as Jesus himself says in John 14, 12, that his disciples will not simply do the same work as Christ, but they will also do greater works than these. Indeed, Christ has ascended and is no longer physically with the men and women of God, but the Spirit comes as a sure testament to the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresence of the triune God. In Acts 2, here on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes in unprecedented ways, and it manifests the triune God in all its omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. This isn't just education. This isn't just knowledge. This isn't just theological doctrine. This is a point that should propel us into deeper worship as we cry out, Amen and Amen and Amen. As Pastor Stephen gave a compelling expedition some time ago, we understand that it is indeed better to have the Spirit of Christ here with us now than the physical body of Christ. For with the Spirit... The saints of God, the disciples of Christ, the church of this age will prevail against the gates of hell. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As the power of God comes manifest by the mighty rushing wind and as it comes manifest like fire from above. All those who are in the Lord's army are now called to bang down the doors of hell. To be men and women, children of God, who pray, Hallowed be your name, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
to bang on the doors of hell, to win souls, to proclaim the gospel as the Spirit gives us utterance and testimony, to proclaim, to evangelize, to be a part of the mission of the church, to take on the kingdom mission. Brothers and sisters, to proclaim eternal life in Christ Jesus is the mission of the church. This is how Charles Spurgeon puts this. He says, Brethren, if every drop of rain has its appointed birthday, every gleam of light is its predestined pathway, and every spark of fire its settled hour of flying upwards, certainly the will, foreknowledge, and decree of God must have arranged and settled the period of every revival and place of every gracious visitation. Times of refreshing in a church or a commonwealth come not expectant as the Creator Spirit has determined. The day of salvation to each individual is an appointed time. The second birth is not left to hazard. Brothers and sisters, friends, as we recognize that God has imparted the Spirit Spirit to the church at the beginning and the genesis of this life as it carries forth now to you and I. May we be encouraged and remember that the Spirit gives us utterance to speak of the mighty works of God, to give testimony, as we have full confidence that it's in God's timing. I know many of you are, pairing, are praying for salvation for your loved ones. Some of you are praying for your mothers, your fathers, your friends, your co-workers, those who are even across the sea and far. Some of you find yourself doing it casually on a Tuesday. Some of you find yourselves doing it as your loved one is bedridden. But friends, do not grow weary. Do not grow Weary and do not lose heart. If the Lord has set them apart, then their time is appointed and it's already written in the book of life. So now we move to our second point. The Spirit comes in unprecedented power to ensure that the saints are empowered for the mission. The Lord makes the mission very clear. It makes it very clear in Acts 1.8 that when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, Pentecost was the second annual harvest festival. It came 50 days after Passover. So if Jesus, if Jesus stayed with the disciples after his resurrection for 40 days, then there must have been a gap of 10 days where the disciples were anxiously waiting for the Holy Spirit, where they're walking around preparing for this second annual festival after Passover, thinking, well, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is coming. Why isn't he coming? He's ascended already. We've looked to the heavens. An angel came and said, hey, he's not going to come back that way. He said, the Spirit's going to come. Where's the Spirit? The people are gathering. The day of Pentecost is coming. We want to be prepared. Surely, during their preparation, as everyone is slowly gathering, they were wondering if the Spirit was ever going to come. 
If you're throwing a festival of this size, of this magnitude, where every, where people from every nation under heaven are coming, it'd be nice to have the gift beforehand <laughs> to prepare for it. But friends, it was God's wisdom and sovereign choice to wait for everyone to gather before the Spirit descended like a mighty rushing wind. It was the Lord's sovereignty to wait so that, peace, so that people of every nation under heaven would gather and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're talking about God's timing. Verse 6 tells us that people were bewildered. But they, weren't, they were bewildered not because they did not understand what the Spirit-filled people were saying, they were actually bewildered because they could understand what was being said and what was taking place. You see, people were not speaking. When the Spirit gave the power of utterance, they weren't speaking in angelic, heavenly languages that no one knows. Rather, they were speaking in their own languages, in their own tongues, Galatians, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and Libya, and Rome. These people were hearing the mighty works of God being uttered by the guiding and empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that all who were gathered there would hear in their own language what God has done through Christ Jesus on the cross and resurrection. Indeed, the mission is not just going out, but here we see an example where the world has come to the central location. Meaning that missions doesn't just have to be a global reach, it can also be a domestic grasp. That just as the Lord calls them to be a witness from Jerusalem to Judea and Samir to the ends of the earth, He also gathers His people to a central place, which I would argue is not geographic but spiritual, the church. That God causes people to the central place, the church to be equipped, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then to go from that central location within the church, outward and outward and outward, locally and globally, to carry out the witnesses and the testimonies that we have in Christ Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit here is that of utterance so that the saints of God would utter and proclaim the mighty works of God to every nation, to every tribe, and every tongue. As Revelation 7, 9 tells us, it is to make clear by way of proclamation and testimony the work of Jesus Christ as He has paid the debt of sin and secured eternal life. The power of the Holy Spirit as it comes in great and unprecedented ways is to simply without confusion or chaos, quite the opposite, is to simply yet powerfully give the saints of God the ability to proclaim the truth of the gospel without border, without wall, but simply to proclaim, to evangelize, to have that as their mission. 
If you are a Christian and you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the sealed security of your salvation, then you have received the Holy Spirit. And, and, and receiving the Holy Spirit is not just so that you can get through the day. It's not just so that you can feel encouraged, although I'm not trying to minimize that. But ultimately, it's to join the mission to be an evangelist, a witness, a proclaimer of Jesus Christ and the eternal life he has secured. Missions without evangelism is just a vacation. But evangelism without mission is heartless. When we would have mission meetings for our youth group students during our mission training, Pastor Danny would say to them, you know, missions is across the seat, missions is across the street, and missions can even be across the sea. Church, we are empowered by the Spirit of Christ for the mission of Christ. So let me take us to the response song and prime us to a certain degree in light of this. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth will stand against the devil's lies. An army bold whose battle cry is love reaching out to those in darkness. Brothers and sisters, children of God, saints, this is our call. This is our mission. This is our joy to give utterance to the mighty works of God as the Spirit empowers us to those close, to those far, in our household, to our children, all whom God has appointed. Let me just conclude with this. You know, next Sunday at 5 p.m., we'll be having a worship service. And the focus is that it is a worship service, first and foremost. It's a worship service. But this worship service will be a time where our ministry officially joins the Church of Christ and the mission of Christ as an organized and particularized church who has who will raise up and ordain and set aside men to the office. And this is a time that will mark indelibly the faithfulness of God and His timing and His plan all along that He had for this body. So now, we're not... We're not praying for another Pentecostal movement. We're not praying that the Spirit comes next Sunday at 5 p.m. like a mighty rushing wind and everyone's neckties flies up and goatees flare up. We're not praying for a Pentecostal type of experience and movement because the Spirit has already come. The Spirit was already poured out. It's still active and present today right now. But I think it should cause us to devote ourselves to prayer like the disciples did in the beginning of their church, to devote ourselves to prayer in preparation for this holy and anointed day, that the Lord indeed would bless it. So I ask, church, will you join us in prayer this week as we prepare for the birth of our church, the ordaining of our elders, 
not so that that would be the end, not so that that would be at the forefront, but so that through becoming a church that is organized, that has accountability, that has elders and leaderships, we can further take the mission of the gospel more faithfully to those across the seat, across the street, and across the seas, that we would be evangelists, proclaimers, missionaries, of the mighty works of God. So let me close us in prayer through the fourth verse of O Church Arise. O Spirit, come, put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of His grace, we hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. So Lord, would Your will be done. Spirit, would You empower us. Father, would You bless us. We pray this in your son's name.